0: From Welcome again to another one of uh, Season's podcasts. Uh, I'm Aziz Durani, a senior financial sector specialist here at Season. And I'm joined in the podcast studio uh, today by Mr. Malik Kotadia, who is the co founder and chairman of Finnovation Labs in Singapore. Welcome, Malik. Thanks, Aziz. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So, um, we, you're here in, in uh, Kuala Lumpur because we're running the CSIN uh, policy summit on cybersecurity. So, I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in more detail uh, in the time to come. But I think to start off with, why don't you give us a quick introduction to yourself. You've had a very fascinating career. Uh, so talk us through your, through your background and, and then how you came to set up Finnovation Labs and, and tell us a bit more about what Finovation Labs actually do and so on. Certainly, my pleasure. And thank you for those kind words. Uh, I don't know if
1: I should use the term uh, fascinating for my career or not, but it certainly has been uh, colorful. So uh, for most of my career, I was uh, a digital banker. Uh, I've been in banking for about 18 years and 14 of those were with Citibank uh, and Standard Chartered before that, but mostly all of it was in digital banking and electronic payments. So um, now that I look back, I almost smile at it and I'm trying to find the right adjective whether I should consider myself lucky or unlucky. Uh, that I got into fintech uh, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Actually, the term fintech didn't even exist then. It was digital banking and uh, when I got into it, it, it was not seen as a cool thing. Okay,
0: so you're quite an innovator at that time.
1: <laughs> hey, we, we were seen as outliers then rather than <laughs> innovators and we were seen as cost centers uh, you know, rather than people who were trying to uh, make it very, very fundamental difference to the bank, but uh, from there to now, I have been fortunate to see this whole space evolve, um, and and evolve not just in a linear manner, but across uh, different cycles. So uh, when I got into this space, and when I started doing digital marketing for uh, financial services, uh, brands like Facebook and Twitter, didn't even exist. YouTube was uh, wow. considered. can you even imagine a time? Like <laughs> exactly, <that? laughs> I, I was there, I was, I, 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 I have run uh, marketing campaigns without Facebook being in the picture. It was Yahoo, yeah. which was the primary uh, recipient of our uh, billion dollars. So from there to now, I, the point I'm making is I have seen the space uh, evolve, evolve rather dramatically and exponentially, but also go through its cycles. I have seen the, you know, Web 1.0 transitioning to Web 2.0 mm-hmm. cycle when there was a slump for about three years when uh, yeah. internet was actually a dirty word right. uh, and and crypto is going or blockchain is going through a similar cycle now, fintech in some ways is going through a similar cycle now so uh, what it does is it affords me a certain holistic perspective uh, which uh, you know I see a lot of enthusiastic founders and evangelists sometimes seem to Uh, lack holistic perspective you know so while I'm certainly an evangelist and believer and I have been in the digital finance space for close to two decades I still see myself as somebody who brings in a more uh, nuanced balanced perspective Uh, and when I moved out of Citibank uh, uh, three years back uh, I started mentoring a lot of fintechs. I actively jumped into the ecosystem in Singapore and gradually to China and other parts of Asia as well. So I okay. uh, mentored fintechs. I sat on their advisory board. So hopefully, I bring a perspective for both banks and fintechs, yeah. uh, which is which kind of you know has a sense of what the other side is seeking.
0: I think it's definitely refreshing that you can you can bring that perspective where you know. Obviously, you want to be positive, but you've seen the ups and the downs, and you can kind of talk through that and maybe help bring some people from getting too high above the clouds <laughs> and, and and get it, get more into the fundamental True. value offering. So, you let you said you left uh, Citibank about three years ago. What That's what, what right. then happened how, after you started mentoring these fintechs? How did you come to set up innovation labs? Thank you for that question. So, when I started mentoring fintechs. Uh,
1: and when I uh, started uh, you know, working with digital accelerators both in Singapore and China, I was fortunate to come in contact with some very, very uh, cutting edge fintechs because these were fintechs which were selected, you know, 10 or 12 fintechs selected from a pool of 200 or 300 fintechs and they went through the whole selection cycle. So um, I, I connected with quite a few uh, interesting founders and very brilliant minds, etc. Uh, And at the same time, I was still fresh from my banking hat, so I I was still connected to my network of city bankers all around the world. And I saw a very distinct gap in the market. So on the one hand, the founders that I was interacting with were were truly brilliant people. I mean, inspiring people. You could learn a lot from them when it came to MVPs and technology and and solving customer problems. But they had a significant uh, weak spot when it came to commercializing and setting up business models. So... Okay. Um, you know, it was, they could set up great products but uh, 9 out of 10 didn't really have a clue of how to go and talk to a bank
0: mm-hmm. how
1: to pitch their product how to partner with banks or how to build a business model around that yeah. and at the same time I was doing that you know, in my banking career for the longest time trying to partner with uh, innovative fintechs but banks were struggling because of their you know, legacy culture and, yes. and a lot yeah. of bureaucracy so I saw this very distinct gap in the market and then uh, that's when Finnovation Labs was born as a venture-builder platform to bring together uh, select cutting-edge fintechs okay. from uh, Asia, even from outside Asia, and uh, enabling them to work with progressive, uh, open-minded, future uh, forward-looking banks uh, in the region who were who actively looking at a digital transformation strategy. Okay. And, the, and the third part of this. Triangle is the regulators as well, because I saw a similar open-mindedness uh, when regulators were trying to deepen their fintech and digital ecosystems as well.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And obviously CSUN is, is owned by 20 central banks and our membership, uh, we have associate members ranging up to 35 central banks in this region. So um, what, what's the sort of uh, interaction you've had with, with regulators? Is it, is it on the side of kind of introducing them to the technology and helping them understand how it works and where the risks are and how they mitigate some of the risks. Is that kind of the main function? Thank you, that's an excellent question. And
1: I have been again fortunate uh, in my, what I call as my 2.0 avatar to have interacted with quite a few regulators, not just from ASEAN, but even North Asia and Southeast Asia, I in mean South Asia. Uh, and the first thing which struck me was uh, this remarkable keenness to learn and open-mindedness and I have to be very honest here that uh, in my close to two decades of banking I had a very different uh, you know perception of uh, regulators you always end up seeing them as cops (laughs) and now when you are suddenly interacting with them you see them as people who are extremely open-minded while trying to uh, you know maintain systemic stability in the ecosystem. Mm But having a remarkable open-mindedness. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm glad you you did say that, and, and then you <laughs> were just the cops. <laughs> no, so yeah. I mean, for me it has been an eye-opener, uh, and because of that, my interactions with central banks and regulators, and even some other government agencies, have ranged from helping them get a deeper understanding of Industry 4.0 and what it really means for their economies and societies and ecosystems, to helping them. Uh, frame the right kind of policies, keeping those long-term impacts in mind. Yeah. Uh, to even uh, you know how to
0: develop and deepen ecosystems uh, for different kinds of fintechs. Okay. And uh, so, in terms of the, if you look at the last year and, and the, the, the companies you've worked with with Finnovation Labs, is do you does does it evolve into then helping? Um, these businesses to be sold on to the banks or are they becoming kind of trusted partners with the banks? Where, where is the kind of uh, direction you're going in? Are, are the banks buying them out or are they kind of licensing their technology or? Thank you. So that, that again is an excellent question
1: and the the simple answer is it's an evolving um, you know, cycle or an evolving engagement model. So. Um, while there is no uh, right or wrong, you know, it really depends upon the, the bank and its maturity as well as the fintech. There are two or three models which largely um, seem to be standards in the market. So, one is obviously uh, where uh, banks set up either their innovation labs or set up their fintech divisions and are looking to partner with um, some very interesting and innovative fintechs, uh, but more in terms of pilots. So, it's really get you know, it's almost like early dating, getting to know each other, and then testing the waters. There is another set of banks who are a little more mature who are going beyond pilots to actually trying to commercialize it and that is where I see probably the biggest challenge even today. Yeah. So, you know, it's great to get a FinTech uh, into the Innovation Lab program or an Accelerator program and, and put them there for one of the pilots, but the real challenge is taking it from the Innovation Lab to the businesses to the businesses. Yeah, that's where my hat as a former banker comes in. because I. I kind of help them navigate how to take it to a commercial, uh, you know, scalability model. And the third is obviously in a couple of cases I have seen banks uh, selectively uh, buying out some of, or or at least significantly investing in these fintechs uh, once comfort is established on
0: both sides. Okay. I I think I'd like to explore a bit more about that in in a little bit but I just wanted to understand In terms of innovation labs itself, is is it is there any kind of government funding or incentives, or are you a completely private? No, we are a completely private. private. Okay. We've not even taken venture funding so far, so we are private and we are completely self-funded. Okay, and you're based in Singapore, but where would you say is that where most of the the companies you work with are based, or are you?
1: That's again an interesting question because. Quite a few of the companies have set up their offices in Singapore but their uh, major operations would typically be in other markets in Southeast Asia. Okay. So Thailand, Philippines, uh, in certain cases Vietnam, Indonesia, okay. even Malaysia and, and parts of North Asia as well. So mm-hmm. uh, Singapore per se uh, is not a significant market for uh, the fintechs because it's yeah. not as large a market as the other. Uh, you know ASEAN nations so it, yeah. the, really the canvas is much broader than uh, Singapore and now we are also significantly exploring Middle East and uh, we are in the process of setting up a hub in Dubai as well. Oh yeah. okay
0: okay well I think that would be another interesting. Interesting it's, it's a very interesting market happening.
1: I've been yeah. making a lot of visits to
0: Dubai in the past year or so and I find yeah. it quite fascinating the MENA region. And I think uh, I think it was um is it Abu Dhabi, uh, who's who's kind of moved over all the government services onto onto the cloud and Amazon cloud? Provider? Correct. So yeah. Dubai is also, in fact, I, I was at a conference uh, late last year in
1: Dubai, where I was fortunate to meet some key people from various Dubai government agencies, including DIFC, and, and Dubai has made this pretty bold proclamation of putting the entire government services on blockchain by. 2022 I think. So uh, you know clearly they are going through their own uh, euphoria as well as teething troubles when it comes to bringing all these agencies uh, on on a blockchain platform and and like any other large-scale digital transformation project uh, the devil really lies in the details.
0: Okay all right that's interesting so I think that that kind of neatly brings us to to the the second topic I wanted to discuss which is uh, it's broadly covering the overall state of play in the fintech sector and the kind of the developments. I think we we initially saw a very rapid rise in different ideas, companies, white papers coming out, uh, and then after the Bitcoin price fell, a lot of these also washed out. And now we're seeing a second generation of, of ideas and companies coming into play. And at the same time, we're also seeing banks such as Standard Chartered have now applied for their digital banking license. HSBC I think are doing the same in Hong Kong. So. Um, would you like to give us a quick summary of where, where you see things are? I mean, I'm sure you can spend hours. Sure. So I'll I, I try and be yeah. as brief because there's so much to cover
1: in this, but let me try and encapsulate it. So the way I see it is, um, FinTech has been around for broadly about 10 11 years. And the first six to seven years is what we call as the 1.0. when The whole idea was that FinTechs will actually replace or kill the banks. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah,
1: And that is when I was still a banker. So it was a it was a disconcerting time for Uh, as in the bank because you were worried about this new agile, nimble competitors who were making better products and offering better MVPs. But then after six or seven years passed and the market became or started becoming mature on both sides, there was an increasing realization that banks and fintechs don't necessarily need to compete. They could collaborate and in fact collaboration was beginning to make more sense for both uh, parties because they brought pretty complementary strengths bank brought a you know a large base of customers and better understanding of compliance uh, infosec regulations and fintechs obviously were more flexible uh, a more uh, nimble
0: culture so so what, what, and, and just, just to explore that a bit more because uh, I remember I was also speaking to some banks and they were saying okay look there's this you know online provider they can do trade finance and send remittances much cheaper they're undercutting us. Ooh. So why didn't those fintechs take over you know, the bank's business models? Was it, was it for regulatory reasons or were they missing, fundamentally missing some part of the puzzle? Thank you, I think that's an excellent question and frankly there's no
1: uh, one single answer to that. So one uh, thing as you rightly pointed out and which I just alluded to a while back is uh, the fintechs because of their constraints of you know, human capital and uh, economic capital Uh, were entirely focusing their energies on growth and high-velocity growth. So uh, the fact that regulations and controls are a very important part of this ecosystem and this industry is not like e-commerce where the more you grow, the better it is. You have to grow in a controlled uh, and um, risk-mitigated manner as well. Uh, That is where some of these, and and I personally I won't name uh, them, but I have personally seen very exciting companies in Southeast Asia, um, that I would have almost bet on both in terms of investment and otherwise
0: okay.
1: uh, which actually uh, are going through yeah. pretty challenging times now simply because of their um, you know, credit modeling and portfolio management practices were not as robust and I yeah. told them pretty early on that this is what they need to focus on. So one is uh, lack of a comprehensive understanding of risk management and also compliance controls, regulations um, as Piyush Gupta of DBS is fond to say that it's it's really not even a level playing field. Uh, the fintechs are, uh, you know, enjoying regulatory arbitrage at this yeah. point. So once that arbitrage starts reducing, uh, clearly fintechs will have to mature up and, and go more and more the way of a regular financial services company. That's where I see part the partnership model is benefiting. Yeah, and I
0: think you're right. This is you know certainly from the regulatory and central bank perspective. It's it's now certainly they want to encourage. These industries, but they want to do it in a controlled manner True. and have a level playing field. So I think that will be the next stage. Is okay, you we are welcome to offer these services. We can plug you into the payment system. We can let you do this, but you have to adhere to the same True. you know levels of control. And that is
1: where we've seen more and more regulators coming up with sandboxes as well. So that's like the buyer media uh, in allowing innovation to. Uh, Grow and flourish without maybe the same requirements as a large bank would be entailed to uh, uh, undertake but at the same time also instilling a certain discipline and a certain rigor uh, in these fintechs, maybe in a more controlled environment but when they go out there after this they are ready with their uh, and I I know whichever regulators or um, central banks or other agencies I have spoken to not just in ASEAN but Pretty much anywhere in the world, Africa or wherever I've been to, they all there is unanimity that certain areas are non-negotiable even for fintech. So KYC is non-negotiable, yeah. AML is non-negotiable, infosec, and tight controls on data management and data privacy is non-negotiable. So fintech will have to, um,
0: you oh. know. On those fronts as well. Yeah, but saying that, I mean, some of the I, I I've used some of these uh, remittance providers, you know, new fintech companies, and actually they, they have a very sophisticated KYC process. Um, okay, they don't need the branch; that you don't need to go in, but you have to send, you know, your passport copy. They verify yes. it. You have to have a video call with them, and you know these kind of things. So in some ways, they're even more sophisticated than what the banks were doing. Uh, and i'm not sure people often give them enough credit for that that side of things
1: absolutely i think you've brought up an excellent point and and this was not to say that fintechs are not really innovating on the risk management or KYC front as well i have personally interacted with quite a few fintechs which are actually focused on the you know digital onboarding process and their digital onboarding services are significantly or far better than what the banks ever had and that, yeah. that again is because they they've built this whole thing ground up on yeah. the cloud they were uh, or they are actively using OCR and other machine learning tools. Mm-hmm. Um, so their ability to, le- or, or in some cases even blockchain for you know distributed storing of uh, 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 confidential records. So these guys have used uh, emerging technologies in a in a far more uh, innovative and sharper way than probably the banks have been able to. But all that I was trying to say is this is not as uh, BAU for fintechs as it is for banks, so yes. risk management yeah. is certainly something which they are doing in a very innovative way But maybe not all of them.
0: Yeah, they need to strengthen the focus on that. Yes uh, Because but the ones to... who are doing it
1: are certainly doing it. I mean I even uh, Video Key Bice etc that I have seen fintechs do, They're doing it better than the banks for yeah. sure.
0: Yeah, okay So and then uh, okay, let's come back to the banks then so, so so You know now a number are setting up their own digital banks. They've also got their own innovation labs in-house yes. Um, how are they how are they doing on that and where do you, do you think they'll be able to properly compete? can they attract the right talent or do you think the fintech is still a more uh, attractive proposition for the budding uh, uh, IT specialist? Well you've asked a lot of
1: questions <laughs> and a lot of loaded questions in one so I'll try and uh, address some of them. The first is how are they doing on the innovation labs front so my very honest and slightly <laughs> Blunt assessment would be, and, and I have been on the other side for 20 years, so I can say that with a fair degree of personal experiences, uh, unless the mindset, um, the culture, um, and the processes of a bank change fundamentally, mm-hmm. setting up innovation labs will not go the entire distance in okay. my own sense. As I said, you know, pilots are great and, and uh, it instills a lot of good things in a bank like it instills a culture of test and learn. It instills a culture mm-hmm. of fail fast. So All the right things that fintechs do. Yeah. But there is always a gap even now with even the best of uh, banks that I have seen in commer- taking it from pilot to commercialization. The gap between the innovation lab head and mm-hmm. the business head yeah. still exists you know, partly because of silos, partly because of culture. And partly because I think there isn't uh, alignment and recognition in banks of what kind of metrics should be used, and I always say this, you know, the, probably the biggest gap is the banks are too used to a certain, you know, set of KPIs and metrics, which is quarterly numbers, etc. what yeah. they've been using for years All and right. decades, and you can't use those metrics when you're trying to bring in innovation. You can't say, will the ROI be in 18 months and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So unless they really define what KPIs they're going to track as success metrics and how these success metrics will tie into their long-term strategic objectives. Yeah. Uh, there, there will continue to be this gap between, uh, you know, doing pilots and failing to commercialize in a meaningful okay. way. And then I have seen some of the banks then, uh, now at least it's reaching a point where they start taking some knee-jerk reactions. So the CFO, uh, you know, suddenly comes into the picture after two years and asks the innovation labs, hey, show me the ROI. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is where... Or if there isn't enough ROI, then
0: stop your hobbies. And there's and there's certainly a lot of pressure on cost cutting at the moment with the major banks, so I can see see that happening. Um, But equally, I guess once these digital banks are being licensed and so on, it actually opens up the market further because once you once an established bank is in there, then there's nothing to stop a newcomer coming in and applying for the digital license as long as they can adhere to the to the set rules. So it might actually open up the the market further for the for the new fintech. Providence that is means. true and, and my own view of uh, virtual banks, you gave the example
1: of Stanchart uh, in Hong Kong as well, so I have been fortunate, I have been very deep in this space uh, when it comes to new banks and banks, and I have met most of the digibank seniors from pretty much all over the world, um, even in Dubai, even in Berlin, etc. My own sense is why a few digibanks are doing well most of the bank-led virtual bank projects are facing similar challenges to what i just narrated a while back i think till the time they get the strategic objectives very very clearly aligned and their kpis aligned they will struggle on what is the definition of success is a hundred thousand customers new customers uh, a good enough validation of success or is it a million customers is it customers or book size is it number of transactions frequency of transactions Or is it that you are opening up a new segment of millennials who are not your hitherto to customers So some of this is I feel and and perhaps I could be a bit uh, wrong is that it's it's a bit knee-jerk to my mind. They start with it and then you know the metrics kind of follow rather than the other way around.
0: Yeah I think you're definitely right there's there's a fear factor there that if we don't The follow factor. Yeah so we we need to have our own uh, kind of thing. And I think you're right. It, it needs to be, you know, a, 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 almost like run like a separate business, very differently from from another division of the bank. Uh, and there's there's a there's another fear factor there that they're cannibalizing their customers from existing the existing so, so all of these yeah. are questions
1: that, and, and there there is no right or wrong answer. Every bank has to answer it, um, you know, in their own way. And, and you mentioned a very important point of having it as a separate business, and that means walking the talk hundred percent, not mm-hmm. just talk. I mean, I have seen banks who who set incorporate their virtual banks as separate legal entities, but uh, their platform is still set up on their mainframe platform. So things like that, you can't have uh, half-baked. You're trying to play safe, but you also want to uh, go out there and be innovative. Can't work that way.
0: All right. Yeah, no, I think there's going to be plenty of developments coming that way. Um, But anyway, no conversation around uh, FinTech and uh, all the associated areas will be complete without discussing Bitcoin and uh, certainly with the recent uh, roller coaster ride we've been having so at the start of the year the price had fallen from kind of the twenty thousand dollars to three thousand or, or somewhere there and then in the last few weeks it's suddenly you know come alive again and we hit uh, eight thousand dollars and it's kind of hovering around there now the million dollar question what are your what are your predictions on the on the Bitcoin price for, for this year and when when it, What's going
1: to happen? So, Aziz, I'm really glad and grateful that you asked me this question. I should immediately, uh, you know, have a very, very clear disclaimer and caveat that while I have been in the blockchain space for over seven years, uh, and I'm, I'm a very, very passionate uh, evangelist and uh, someone who's really trying to bring this technology to banks, to central banks, and to other government agencies, I i'm not at all interested in the price of cryptocurrencies or uh, the speculative aspect around that in fact i am i'm actually uh, more than indifferent to it I, I think that is hiding or shadowing a lot of the good work yeah um, you know which is happening in this space uh, when all the media narrative revolves around uh, you know the 20000 or or Uh, you know, a few hundreds going to 20,000, 20,000 falling to 4,000, 4,000, rebounding to 8,000. And I do not, uh, you know, say that the price of cryptocurrencies, especially Bitcoin, isn't important. It certainly is. Uh, But it is one of the metrics, as I said, you know, with with Innovation labs as well, one has to be very clear about what is your definition of success. And for me, Um, and for quite a few other evangelists in this industry, we are trying to really bring this technology to the mainstream. I mean, WEF made a prediction some time back that uh, by 2023 or 2024, uh, 10% of the global GDP would be or should be on the blockchain. So things like that, Uh, how many banks are adopting blockchain? Is it in supply chain? Is it in making the customer processes better? Is it in uh, eliminating inefficiencies in the ecosystem? So that is where... My focus and my uh, evangelistic fervor is okay. uh, I personally do not speculate or yeah. trade at all. Uh, so. And I strongly, uh, I won't say discourage, but mm. I mean, it is there for people who have an appetite to get into the speculative game, yeah. but at the end of the day, I believe it doesn't do much to what this
0: technology can sure. uh, bring to the ecosystem. Okay. I think that was a very sensible re- response uh, and you and you very cleverly batted away my, my, my subtle... Uh, uh, Attempt to try and get a prediction <laughs> on the Bitcoin price. So, no, I I I take your view. And uh, to be honest, my interest in in Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies was was stemming uh, originally from from what it offered and the underlying benefits and uh, you know the the kind of independence. True. Uh, it it then has taken on this whole speculative fervor, fervor which I think. Uh, discredit some of the underlying technology but again and, don't get yeah. me wrong Aziz. So I'm
1: I'm not uh, somebody who's discounting cryptocurrencies sure. or the price of bitcoin because I I I have an 18 year old nephew I keep chatting with him and learning from him on how the millennial mind works yeah and, and their mind thinks and uh, you know sees money in a very different way from our generation so Correct. for right. them there isn't a need for a central bank to issue to you know be the custodian of uh, currencies and for them anything which is peer-to-peer or democratized yeah. uh, they have grown up in the social media era so for them yeah. money has a similar connotation so clearly that generation will be looking at money uh, probably for them cryptocurrencies is more uh, native as money to them than you know central bank issued currencies but um, I'm just uh, a bit against the speculative aspects and how the whales are trying to uh, game the system, which sure. is probably taking the energy and the focus away from
0: yeah. the real yeah. issues at hand. Exactly. It's, it's very unregulated and they can come in, make a big sale or purchase, push the price up or down and then make a big profit out of it, which which yeah. I agree is, is not right. But but you bring a very important point about the millennial mindset and certainly we've seen after the financial crisis of 2007-8, um, you know, there was there was this fear that, okay, central banks aren't in control, Yes. as much as we thought they were of, of, of the economy and of, of the currency. And so I think it's it's very appropriate for for the new generation to have that fear. And now, you know, Facebook are, are, are putting in place their own currency, Guarantee, their own cryptocurrency, yeah. right? You can just imagine with a billion users or whatever they have, that could very well become the new established, you know, uh,
1: and if you really think about it, you know, if you if we zoom out a little bit and take a step back and see the evolution of digital or internet over the last 25 years, it all seems to be making sense because you know decentralization 1.0 was all about decentralization of uh, the media and the mainstream economy of commerce, etc. And mm-hmm. social media took it to the next level in 2.0, where Aziz and Malik could just chat directly. Uh, without, you know, having to go through our phone operator and paying, you know, those ridiculous charges for SMS yeah. texts, etc. Yeah. So, decentralized money or peer-to-peer money is a very logical extension of how uh, more and more things in our society are becoming decentralized. And if you really listen to or or track Singularity University and Peter Demandis and others, they have spoken of this, uh, you know, for a while saying that this is where, uh, you know, things will go to. And, and that's how the millennial mind sees uh, everything evolving. For them, there isn't really, as you said, there's no need for a... I mean, apart from the trust factor, frankly, I don't uh, see them uh, really understanding what is the rationale of yeah. 10 or 15 wise men uh, you know, controlling right. the destiny, the fiscal yeah. destiny or the monetary destiny of the yeah. entire
0: society. And in fact, the other, apart from Bitcoin, the other cryptocurrency i'd be interested in is ethereum and I, and I don't know if you have a view on that but that is actually offering a whole new platform true for the whole way everything is set up on the internet how we do business and so on you, do you have a view on that uh, thanks for that and i'm glad you asked that so yes i have been
1: tracking ethereum for four years uh, now as well and i was lucky in 2015 i think to get a selfie with vitalik before he became uh, such uh, a rock star <laughs> uh, when he used to do more of intimate talks etc so I have been tracking the, the growth of uh, Ethereum and, and like uh, you know all the other platforms, it went through a rough time last year as well, but you're absolutely right, the key differentiation is because it was set up as uh, a newer, better, more flexible uh, architecture um, and it allows for smart contracts, so it allows for coding to be embedded uh, into the peer-to-peer transactions. Yeah. A lot of business models have or are conceptually possible on it a lot of uh, DApps have been in fact I've even lost count last I read somewhere or I tried there were some 1800 DApps which were uh, you know being piloted on Ethereum now again the challenge is uh, Ethereum has slightly similar fundamental challenges as Bitcoin in terms of the number of transactions per second etc. scalability so you can't have um, you know a parallel payment system or a parallel system to Facebook etc being created where you can only do 40 transactions a second and not 40,000 so yeah. um, and, and now we are seeing various newer platforms coming as well like NEO, EOS, mm-hmm. uh, some others who've raised a lot of money who are try, or even Lightning Network with uh, the guys from MIT are trying to solve for yeah. these capacity issues. So I think we are in a very exciting time and and that, that's what I said in the beginning if you focus on the real issues so much yeah. Uh, interesting and good work is happening in trying to solve for the bottlenecks around uh, the blockchain. That in the next three years, once some of these capacity issues or um, you know uh, blockages are smaller, blockages and, yeah. and bottlenecks are gradually uh, chipped away at, mm. then we'll really see an explosion. And that is where I see the next big wave of enterprises adopting uh, blockchain in a significant way when some of these question marks have been addressed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we're already seeing a fantastic take-up on the blockchain. Many of the banks are testing transactions, yes. using it. You know, Every day there's a new story. So I think you're absolutely right on, on that aspect. Uh, but talking about currencies, what about uh, a central bank-issued digital currency or coin? Uh, do you have a view on, on, on that? Uh, that's
1: a great question. Thanks for asking it. And, and at all the blockchain conferences that I go to or speak at, this is really one of the more polarizing uh, topic so okay. uh, for the maximalists yeah. uh, they hate it and they trash it I mean they think this is uh, just old wine in a new bottle and again wherever the word central bank comes in yeah. uh, you know it, it gets them But well, for it, f- a l- it fundamentally <laughs>
0: removes that whole peer-to-peer yeah. independence process
1: but for a lot of others who want this ecosystem to succeed and succeed in a more mature uh, and responsible fashion I think this is an excellent development yeah. uh, now of course uh, there is a long way to go and I have I have had some uh, informal discussions with some colleagues from central banks etc who are trying to pilot uh, CBDCs Um, and why so far what I've seen is it's really a settlement and trade uh, you know froze kind of a system it's a b2b system what most of the central banks are looking at including project open Will any central bank make the leap to a, you know, B2C or a consumer-led uh, digi- central bank digital currency? Yes, it's it's very likely it will happen, but again, there will be a lot of things to be ironed out, including w- what will be the role of banks then. Yeah. The central banks, that the right. entire system works on central mm-hmm. banks and banks being the intermediaries in the flow of money. There's a whole existential question there. If, if there is a you know central bank issued digital currency and there is a wallet which you and I own. Yeah. And what happens to uh, the entire ecosystem yeah. so I, I guess.
0: And then the concern also from the public perspective is well you know it's quite a scary environment because then you know the bank has the power to put interest rates to zero or negative to yes. force you to spend money uh, or you know what happens in a situation where you are speaking out against the government and they just exactly. cut your accounts. So, so, it, you so
1: I was speaking I was referring to it earlier for the is the idea is the government should have no control over my money and yeah. I'm one may. Uh, you know, sometimes derided as a very idealistic point of view. Yeah. For the libertarians, that is where Bitcoin came about. In fact, this right. was one of the first things that Satoshi mentioned in his paper, uh, in yeah. his uh, you know white yeah. paper. Yeah. So it is as much a political statement as yeah. it is an economic statement.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see the developments on that. But I think you know, given the technology is moving that way, it's, it's not, not a surprise that the central banks will be looking into that. Uh, in a lot more detail. In fact, if you don't mind, I should ask
1: you what's your view on CBDCs being on this side of uh, Well, I mean,
0: although I I do work very closely with with a lot of the central banks, I think fundamentally uh, my my view is that there should be the freedom in the currency and so I would be very worried if you know, the the central bank has a complete monopoly and and Mm. takes it over. So I, I take the libertarian Viewpoint on that. <laughs> you will be uh, very popular at blockchain conferences. Then. But uh, but saying that, I think there's there's no harm in you know if you're if you're issuing money anyway, Correct. then issuing money in a digital capacity is kind of it's a more efficient. Way it's a, yeah, exactly. So as long as you still have a choice, then it's fine. But my worry is when you go too much into into one or the other. So sure, okay. So now with any, I think we 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 obviously here for the. CSEM Policy Summit on Cybersecurity. So let's talk a bit about cybersecurity. Um and potentially the the kind of you know, th- there's, there's been a lot of these um, attacks on commercial banks, but also on central banks, money has been lost. We know it's constantly happening and, 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 and ongoing. So that's not
1: forget a lot of crypto wallets as well. A yeah, lot of crypto and, money as well. Absolutely.
0: So so that's ongoing. I think it's gonna get worse as time goes on. What, but, but you know, what's your view on that and how can it fundamentally derail this kind of fintech revolution? Because if we don't have that security uh, or at least a base level, then people are going to lose trust in everything. Thanks for that, Aziz. And I'm glad you brought about That's a very
1: important question and often one of the more overlooked aspects uh, in the fintech ecosystem, something that I tell a lot of the fintechs that I mentor as well uh, to watch out for. As I mentioned earlier, in this race to... Uh, you know grab real estate and grow fast Um, some of the control aspects have been uh, if not forgotten certainly relegated to the background Mm -hmm. Um, and and what we've seen uh, not just with fintechs but with the rise of these Chinese giant tech things like you know and financial or uh, WeChat Pay or Paytm in India etc we are seeing what I see as the three Fs happening when it comes to transactions and customer experience a faster frictionless Mm -hmm. Uh, freemium and, and whether you're a bank or whether you're a fintech or a tech, tech fin you will hear these uh, You know buzzwords yeah. pretty much consistently everybody wants more frictionless customer experience and then players like Amazon go and Alibaba ima have taken it to the next level, mm-hmm. right? You just walk in take your stuff and walk out uh, While that is great and a seamless customer experience is a goal worthy goal that every financial services organization should strive for there has to be a balance between how much frictionless versus what levels of control, etc. And then there are perpetual debates again. I'm nobody to judge or say right or wrong. Uh, I was having a chat with uh, a friend who's the general manager of one of the largest uh, payment companies uh, in the world uh, on, um, you know, on whether every transaction should be validated through a two-factor authentication or should, no. should their AI engine just be enough to determine whether a transaction should go through or not. But frictionless certainly has its other side, which is, um, you know, if transactions are real time, they are instant. Uh, That means the threats are also real time and instant. Mm. Um, And and, uh, even this whole idea of making onboard, digital onboarding, we we spoke about it a while back, making it more uh, intuitive, more frictionless, more seamless uh, means that there is a lot more customer. Data, confidential data, and a rich trove mm-hmm. of data mm-hmm. uh, which is sitting out there on the cloud with singular entities. And we've seen so many hacks. I mean, not yeah. just banks, frankly, even we saw recently with Marriott and others, yeah. even giants like Yahoo. So we are living in this interesting time where the balance between how much of security and, and maybe a little bit of a customer inconvenience mm. uh, can be balanced with. A more frictionless experience the honest thing is i don't i have not found the sweet spot just yet yeah. and i'm I, I in fact that's something that i'll be keenly looking forward to hearing in the you know in the, in the uh, summit over the yeah. next two days to see what where is the right sweet spot is there even a right answer or each does each organization have to determine its own uh, right equilibrium. Correct.
0: But Malik, I'm really glad you mentioned the term techfin uh, because I think that, that really gets to the crux of the argument in a sense because we've been talking about the traditional banks and then the new fintech players, but actually if you think about it, traditionally banks held the power because they controlled money and they could issue money and make loans. Um, but now the currency of the, of the moment is data, it's the yes. control of data. And this is what the tech fins have, right? The, the Facebooks and the Google. Sometimes Apple a lot of Google. data. Exa- oh, too much of it. Too, exactly. They know exactly what you're thinking, where you're going, even before you've, you've thought it. And so, you know, they naturally can use that data and, and move into the financial sector and, you know, to take take everything over. So we might not even have this debate about who's the new fintech player. Or the Absolutely. You, you alluded to the Facebook coin a while back, yeah. right? I mean, Facebook coin is just one more hyped
1: up thing in the media, but you look at Amazon's plans, you look at the kind of uh, ground uh, both Alibaba and WeChat have mm-hmm. covered in financial services over the last few years of what PTM has done in India. Yeah. I mean, come to think of it, these were messaging services, right, Correct. these were chat yeah. engines and yeah. today they sell more mutual funds than any other uh, entity, their, their payment transaction volumes are probably 5x of US MasterCard or Visa yeah. you know, transactions combined. So uh, it's mind-boggling what has been achieved yeah. simply uh, because they control not just uh, you know all the customer data, but the the customer interaction. I think that's going to be the key, and that is where banks are facing. Mo- I feel the bigger challenge to banks is not uh, from the technology of the fintech, but who, the fact that these newer entities control uh, the customer interaction. I mean, look yes. at Grab; that's a classic example. Yeah. it started with a taxi service, but because they control the gateway to the customers. Yep. they can introduce wallets and then loans and so Correct. on. Correct. So yeah, forth. no. Gr-
0: Grab is a great example, and actually, we've got Grab coming tomorrow to speak uh, at our session on on the cybersecurity with fintech. So that that'll be interesting. But you're right. They started off as a taxi app. We use it, you know, all the time here in in Malaysia. I'm sure you do in Singapore. And they've expanded from that into delivering food and now you know ordering other things and then financial services. They they're kind of uh, going into and. Now you can pay on everything with with your grab app. You don't even need to go into the cash. So suddenly you're tied into that ecosystem. And once you're in there, you know, you're you're kind of... So that is the
1: real risk for the banks. I mean, this whole ecosystem plays what the banks... I can tell you from first-hand experience when I talk to all my, um, you know, colleagues even now, they're really concerned about this, that... For the longest time banks stood for two things trust and the fact that if you wanted to do something with money mm-hmm. the bank was your gateway now suddenly the yeah. bank isn't your primary gateway
0: yeah yeah correct um yeah so we'll have to see and uh particularly on the on the, the cyber security front is they hold so much data and you know how long is it before there's some kind of massive breach and all that data is is back, released back into the market and people afford it so one of the continual worries that uh...
1: and, and it's going to become increasingly worrisome i just read uh, perhaps you can uh, you know add to it um, that a few days back uh, uh, the customs and border protection in the u.s data was compromised it's not just name and address and it's biometric data right
0: yeah it's,
1: wow. it's even more uh, risky so the world we are living in data compromises are becoming more and more
0: uh, scary yeah. in, in terms of potential a,
1: compromises. Yeah,
0: there was a similar breach in Singapore with the yes. health, health data, data yes. in the UK with the NHS that yes. some of that data has been stolen. So, yeah, you're, you're, I think this will, this will keep going on and especially as central banks and regulators, we've got to figure out how we can secure that environment as, as much as possible. Yeah. Okay, Malik, I'm, I'm aware of the time. So just uh, before we end this podcast, I wanted to get your thoughts on the outlook for the rest of 2019. Um, and and into 2020 what do you see are the kind of real hot topics or issues Uh, we've talked about quite a few of them already I think but anything anything else you want to bring in or that we should be looking out for or worrying about
1: thanks for that Aziz and I really enjoyed this conversation
0: we've covered a lot of
1: important aspects but if I had to just add one more and perhaps not even for 2020 but maybe 2022 and beyond Uh, we spoke about this collaboration progressively happening between banks and fintechs Uh, rather than competition and that is now evolving into this whole open banking model so i'm seeing more and more banks uh, opening up their apis to the ecosystem so while uh, there is a fear that they might be losing out on the customer interaction uh, and they might be relegated to becoming utilities there is also the awakening that if you can't beat them you might as well join them and uh, you know try and create a new model so i see that kind of a collaboration driven by open data, driven by open APIs, common API standards as being an important space to watch out for uh, and the model of collaboration It's already beginning to happen with some um, you know, global banks and some banks in Singapore. Uh, but I think in the next three to four years, we will see a lot more uh, active engagement between uh, banks and fintechs um, when it comes to open APIs and open data. And perhaps to my earlier concern about Innovation lab transcending into you know commercial model. This might actually be the viable way forward.
0: Yeah, yeah No, I think I think you're spot-on there and actually one thing we didn't really talk about it But there's also this whole industry in the fintech side of reg tech and suit tech So the regulatory technology because you know central banks and regulators also have a lot of data And you know, I'm sure there's a number of fintech companies that, that that can be brought into to help uh, you know uh, assess that data and uh, Absolutely. do a lot of the work, so that that could be another area as well. Yes,
1: and I I have uh, seen some central banks doing some, or at least trying to do some very interesting big data projects with some of these soup tech companies to really uh, you know derive patterns from what the data they have as well as the data they get regulatory reporting data they get from the banks. So we're we'll going to see an interesting uh, model in which central banks will start getting more and more self-reliant in understanding patterns and trends rather than having to rely on um, you know just the reporting from their uh, member institutions so yeah. that's where i guess Red tech and soup
0: tech can play a bigger role absolutely absolutely okay well malik thank you very much it's been a pleasure chatting with you and i'm really looking forward to hearing some more of your thoughts uh, during the rest of the season policy summit uh, over the next couple of days And I hope you enjoy your time in Kuala Lumpur.
1: Thank you, Aziz. The pleasure was mine. And I certainly look forward to our session tomorrow. And thank you for inviting me here. It's always a pleasure to be back in KL. I I love the place.
0: Great. Okay. Thank you very much.